two films, one theme. This is Words and Movies. Thank you very much, Alex, and welcome to the next episode of Words and Movies. I'm your co-host, Claude Call. And I'm your other co-host, Sean Gallagher. Once upon a time, <laughs> there was a type of story known as a fairy tale. This was a type of story that was told in a very simple manner, often had magic and maybe other supernatural characters or characteristics about it. Didn't always end with a moral, of course. That was a fable. But um, these were tales that lived for centuries on, both in oral form and in written form. And when movies were invented, movie makers decided to tell some of these fables in movie form. Uh, Walt Disney, of course, was famous for doing that. Uh, now, granted, although he told them straight, he told them in somewhat sanitized form. But there were other filmmakers who took the ideas of those uh, fairy tales and updated them to different types of stories. And our next two episodes are going to look at a couple of movies that are updated fairy tales. And we're starting out with, from 1941, Ball of Fire, directed by Howard Hawks. And from 1986, Mona Lisa, directed and co-written by Neil Jordan. Another thing that ties these two particular movies together is they both involve gangsters. Mm -hmm. Although uh, the gangsters in A Ball of Fire is more of a plot point, whereas in Mona Lisa, that is the milieu that it's set in. And they both involve somewhat improbable love stories, although only one of them ends happily. And we'll talk about that more as we discuss each individual movie. But right now, Claude will give us the plot description for Ball of Fire. Yes, yeah, so the film opens up with uh, a prologue, actually, on the screen, and it reads, Once upon a time, in 1941 to be exact, there lived in a great tall forest called New York, eight men who were writing an encyclopedia. They were so wise that they knew everything, the depth of the oceans and what makes a glowworm glow and what tune Nero fiddles while Rome is burning. But there was one thing about which they knew very little, as you will see, dot, dot, dot. So we have this group of eight professors, all of whom are bachelors, except for one who is a widower. And they live together in a New York City residence, compiling this encyclopedia of all human knowledge. It's a project that they've been working on for several years, and according to one of them, they're only eh, maybe three years away from being finished. The youngest, Professor Bertram Potts, is a grammarian played by Gary Cooper. Professor Potts' specialty of research is modern American slang. The professors are accustomed to working in relative seclusion at a leisurely pace, with a prim and rather strict housekeeper, Miss Bragg, keeping watch over them. Miss Bragg is played by Kathleen Howard. 
Their work is being backed by a Miss Totten, played by Mary Field, whose father, Daniel S. Totten, was the original financier of the project. He provided for $250,000 in his will to get the job done, specifically because he was annoyed that he wasn't mentioned in the Encyclopedia Britannica as the inventor of the electric toaster. The endowment has run out, and Miss Totten does not want to spend cash out of her own pocket to complete the job. However, she is a little sweet on pots, and she softens her stance, but it's still quite important that they finish the project. When a garbage man comes in asking the professor's assistance for a quiz contest, Bertram realizes he is far behind the latest uses of slang and ventures out to do some independent research. He finds himself at a nightclub, and he finds himself interested in the slang used in the song Drum Boogie, as performed by Gene Krupa's band, with the vocals provided by Catherine Sugarpuss O'Shea, who is played by Barbara Stanwyck. At the end of the show, while Potts is getting her name from a waiter played by Elisha Cook, Sugarpuss learns that she suddenly needs a place to hide from the police because they want to question her about her boyfriend, who is mob boss Joe Lilock. Sugarpuss is reluctant to help Potts at first until she realizes he's exactly what she needs to stay off the cop's radar. So she takes refuge in the house where the professors live and work, despite Potts' objections and Ms. Bragg's threat to leave because of her. In the meantime, Joe, who is played by Dana Andrews, decides to marry her, but the only reason he wants to do that is because, as his wife, she could not be compelled to testify against him. The professors soon become fond of her and she of them. Sugarpuss teaches them to conga, and she demonstrates the, to Bertram the meaning of the phrase yum-yum, that would be kisses, but she's basically feigning interest in him so that she can stay in the house until Joe's henchman can come get her and bring her out to New Jersey. But before long, she becomes genuinely attracted to Bertram, who reciprocates by proposing marriage to her. She avoids giving him an answer because she has agreed to a plan that Joe cooked up to have the professors drive her out to New Jersey so that she can marry him. Miss Bragg becomes wise to the scheme, but Sugarpuss knocks her out, and the professors all pile into a car to take her out of the state. Unfortunately, the car runs off the road and is damaged, so they don't make it to their destination, and they have to stay in a motel instead. Joe and his men show up at the motel and tell Potts about the marriage scheme. Potts is heartbroken, but when the police show up with Ms. Bragg, he covers for them. The professors all return to New York. They're all dejected. Potts apologizes to the group, and he notes that they'll have to work extra hours to make up for the time they lost. One of the professors notes that Sugarpuss gave him the engagement ring, but it turns out to be Joe's ring, not the one Potts gave her, suggesting that she really loves him and not Joe. Just then, Miss Totten returns with her lawyer, who's played by Charles Lane, in tow. Uh, because of the bad press that the foundation has garnered, she's decided to terminate the project immediately. Potts makes an argument that he should be fired, but the rest of the professors should be allowed to continue their work. But before she can answer, Joe's henchmen break into the house and they hold everyone at gunpoint. Meanwhile, at the Justice of the Peace, Sugarpuss is refusing to go through the wedding because she realizes she's in love with Potts. Joe calls the house, and it's one of the henchmen who answers the phone. Sugarpuss realizes that she has to go through with the wedding if the professors are going to stay alive. But after he hangs up, Potts and the professors uh, realize that the henchmen are there specifically to ensure that the wedding goes through, and therefore Sugarpuss has to be in love with Potts. 
The professors, using lofty double talk as both code and distraction, manage to outwit and overpower the henchmen. They pile them into the back of a truck and torture one of them to reveal the location of the impending wedding by tickling him. They arrive in the nick of time and interrupt the wedding. Potts offers to fist fight Joe, but that doesn't go well, at least not at first. The police arrive and they take the bad guys away. And we're back at the Justice of the Pieces place. Sugarpuss claims she's not good enough for Bertram, but he applies a little of the yum-yum to change her mind. And before I forget, I should note that if some of these synopses that I do are disturbingly similar to the ones you find in IMDb, it's because I've been submitting them to the website when I see a film doesn't have one. So, no plagiarism here, my friend. Okay, so... One thing that I forgot to mention that these two movies have in common, we'll get that right off the bat before we dive into Ball of Fire, and that is that both of these movies are based, are inspired by, I should say, specific fairy tales. Uh, we'll tell, I'll tell you what Mona Lisa was inspired by when we get to talking about that, but a uh, ball of fire was inspired by Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Obviously, of course, uh, there are quite a few liberties taken with the original fairy tale. For starters, um, Sugar Puss is about as far from at least the Disney version of Snow White that you could imagine. Even though she does have, she does ultimately have good inside her when she realizes that um, she's screwing over pots and that she honestly loves him. Well, to paraphrase Mae West, she used she was Snow White, but then she drifted. <laughs> yes. And, of course, uh, Prince Charming, uh, Bertram, is uh, very different as well, or as uh, Sugar Puss calls some Potsy. And <laughs> the dwarves are, um, you know, obviously they're much taller, but they're not given, you know, the exact characteristics as the dwarves from the story, even though they do have their own distinct characteristics in what they study and, and in how they act as well. But before we get to any of that, we need to mention the other major person behind the camera, aside from director Howard Hawks, and that is co-screenwriter Billy Wilder. Yes. When we talked about Stalag 17, I mentioned the fact that Wilder started out as a screenwriter, working with, among other folks, Ernst Lubitsch, but then after a bad experience with his co-writer of this movie as well, on the movie, uh, Charles Brackett, on the movie Hold Back the Dawn, where Charles Boyer changed a scene without Wilder's consent, Wilder decided that, like John East, like Preston Sturges and John Easton before him, he wanted to move into directing. And Ball of Fire was to be his very last movie as a writer only. And what he did was, A, he had it written into his contract that he could observe Hawks 
on the set while Hawks was directing. And two, he dusted off an old short story that he had written in Germany called From A to Z. And in addition to Charles Brackett, who uh, was the credited co-writer on the screenplay, a fellow by the name of Thomas Monroe helped Americanize the story because originally the professors were written as British. Now, this stands as somewhat of a contrast to Wilder's forthcoming movies in that although there are some innuendos tossed here and there, it's actually pretty mild compared to what he'd do in later comedies, even though he did direct movies like Love in the Afternoon and Avanti, which are actually pretty gentle for Wilder. And it's also an outlier for Hawks in that he, when he made comedies, and I'm talking about strict comedies, not the Westerns or the war or what we would nowadays call action movies that he did, which had a comic bent to them. But when he made comedies, they were more of the very fast, very uh, fast-talking screwball variety. And I'm thinking of such movies, of course, as 20th Century, Bringing Up Baby, and His Girl Friday. Now, I know uh, from what you've uh, commented on some of my posts about that those are the Hawks group types of comedies that you actually prefer. (laughs) But I have to say, though both Wilder and Hawks would later not disparage this movie so much as not fully embrace it. To me, this stands as each of one of their finest movies. Oh, it's, it's a fine film. I'm not, I'm not disparaging it at, at all. One of the things I like is that it is, I mean, this is the kind of thing I kind of dig. It, it is so self-referential. There are so many weird little in-jokes in this film and and that makes it a ton of fun and that might be something that it's possible that both hawks and wilder might have thought you know okay we're being a little bit too cute you know in in later years you know so there are things about you know for instance when gary cooper's out on the street and he's like taking down notes from the from the newsboy and you can see a marquee in the background that's the film the film is showing is snow white and the seven dwarfs so they did do a little bit of a direct A to B. And I also heard that there was a publicity photo taken of the professors, which basically lined each one of them up with the seven dwarfs. So while in the story, we don't get a direct one-to-one correspondence, the poster kind of, kind of uh, the, the photo rather, kind of spells that out for us. Um, well, but, there's, but there's also like references, there's multiple references to Cooper as Sergeant York, which I believe was his previous film. Yes. Um, if I remember correctly. Yes. So I just like, there was a lot of funky little things like that, which which you kind of had to know, you know, it's like you could enjoy it at the same time, but you you really had to, to, 
it, they, were, they were kind of deep cuts with the jokes, and I did appreciate some of those. Well, Wilder and Hawks were known for doing that uh, mm-hmm. in a, a lot of their movies. I mean, it's His Girl Friday. Um, well, Archie you know, Leach, yeah. Harry <laughs> Grant is uh, having his... Uh, the, one of the women who worked for him uh, accost Ralph Bellamy and then accuse him of accosting her. Mm-hmm. And she says, what does he look like? He says, well, you know, uh, he looks he like looks that like Ralph, fellow, Bellamy. Uh, Ralph Bellamy. Right. And he and also refers he to like the, the guy he doesn't trust named Archie Leach. The last guy was Archie Leach. <laughs> and Wilder, of course, um, he did that throughout his movies um, when uh, James Cagney appeared in the very screwball comedy 123 a character played by Red Buttons even throws a Cagney imitation back in his face <laughs> so so I don't know if it was that so much that they were objecting to but that's I'll, I'll say that the other problem that you get with this film is because you've got characters like like um, Sugar Puss and Joe Lilac and the henchman, you know, and the newsboy. I mean, all these 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 non-professorial characters, you know, tossing about slang. The problem that you're going to get with that is that the film kind of dates itself a little bit after a fairly short period of time. And so there are there are times when characters are going to use slang and some of it you can do with context clues and some of it you can't. So referring to the phone as the Amici, which was a common piece of slang at the time because Don Amici had played Alexander Graham Bell in a film. Great. You know, that makes sense. And then there's another one, which, um, it comes right, right near the end of the film where, um, Joe is, he's, he talks about, he's going to call, um, Potts to threaten him. And she says, that ain't funny, McGee. Taint funny, McGee. And that's, yeah. And and actually, that's my contribution to IMDb on that, is that it is a reference specifically to Fibber McGee and Molly. And so well, that's something that you wouldn't necessarily get these days unless you were a fan of the old-time radio. Well, or you watched a lot of Looney Tunes shorts, because they would True. reference yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that all the time. But... As we've discussed with so many other classic movies that we, um, studio era movies that we've talked about, you know, if that's the worst thing that dates this movie, it's, uh, oh, it's doing all right. To be sure, but, it's, it's definitely forgivable, yeah. sure. Now, this was not the only movie that Cooper and Stanwyck had worked together on that year. And by the way, I should mention that it was Martha Tilton who dubbed Stanwyck's singing voice uh, for Drum Boogie. Yeah. But anyway, um, that year, they'd also appeared in Meet John Doe for Frank Capra. Mm-hmm. And Cooper so much enjoyed the experience working with Stanwyck that he recommended her to... Howard Hawks and to Samuel Goldwyn, the studio that made Ball of Fire. And actually, Lucille Ball wanted to play the part. Hmm. And as I liked Lucille Ball pre I Love Lucy, that might have been an interesting choice. But as soon as Goldwyn found out that Stanwyck was available, he grabbed her instead. Also, Ginger Rogers 
and Carol Lombard both turned down this part, uh, although Rogers later regretted it. And although 1939 gets bandied about as the greatest year in Hollywood in the studio era, I think 1941 deserves some consideration. And you need no further proof of the fact that in addition to Meet John Doe and Ball of Fire, Cooper and Stanwyck each starred in another classic that was released that year. We already mentioned Sergeant York, and the reference to that in this movie, well, there's a couple references, but the one that I remember most is when Dan Durie, who's playing one of the henchmen, uh, is rubbing his gun sight the same way that Gary Cooper did in the previous movie. Uh, right. Pastrami. Licked his, licked his thumb and then yeah, and rubbed it on the gun sight to cut down the glare. And then yeah, there's also the bit about um, toward the end of the film as the henchmen are backing out of the house and the professors are knocking them out one by one. Yes. And that's a reference to uh, York and basically you shoot the last turkey, not the first one, because you shoot the first one, right. they all scatter. And so he's doing yeah. the same thing, getting the last guy first and hitting the first yes. guy last. But as I was saying, uh, Stanwyck, in addition to the two movies she did with Cooper, she also did The Lady Eve which is one of the greatest screwball comedies ever made, written and directed by Preston Sturges. Now, this one is not maybe as side-splittingly funny as The Lady Eve is. And if you haven't seen Lady Eve, do yourself a favor and watch it. Go right now. We'll wait. Yeah, but it is a really good movie, and it does give... Ballfire does give Stanwyck a chance to shine. And one scene that comes immediately to mind is when Bertram, or as she insists on calling him, Potsy, is uh, trying to throw her out. Um, you know, that's when she brings up the Amici. Mm-hmm. because she had heard Pastrami say that before. And he says to her the immortal line, make no mistake, I shall, I, I shall miss your uh, keen mind. Unfortunately, it's attached to a... Big, uh, the exact line is, make no mistake, I shall regret the absence of your keen mind. Unfortunately, it is inseparable from an extremely disturbing body. <laughs> yeah. Now, it's right after this, of course, that Stanwyck sets out to seduce him, to get him to agree to let her stay. And yet, Stanwyck doesn't do anything obvious in that scene to show that she's seducing him. You know, when he says that line, she merely shrugs her shoulders and walks over to the window and just gives a tiny glance back Mm -hmm. at him just to make sure that he's looking. And yet at the same time, you can tell what she's doing, even though she's not being obvious about it. And it's a very good comic performance, which... 
also contains some nice dramatic work as well. The scene later in the movie when they're all at the motel before Bertram finds out that she's marrying um, Joe Lilac and he goes into what he thinks is Professor Oddly's room to tell him how he feels about Sugar Puss and that he doesn't want to wait, but because of the old um, six on the room um, slipping down and turning into nine, he gets into her room instead and he makes that confession and she's moved to tears by it. And the way she plays that is very good. And then also earlier when he proposes to her and he gives her the ring with uh, what's inscribed in there, which I believe is a Shakespeare reference. I forget exactly which one it is. But the way she plays how she's sort of moved by that more moved than she might have imagined that she'd ever be by him and then of course the scene with uh, Joe Lilac near the end when she confesses that she's in love with Bertram even though she adds I love him because he doesn't know how to kiss the jerk you know Stanwyck plays all of that great yeah, and one of the things I've always admired about her is her ability to just shift gears very quickly when when something happens in a scene. And and I and I'm there, there's like she often comes off as like, yeah, I'm the smartest person in the room. And then every once in a while, you know, she'll come up against this thing and says, "Ooh, I'm not so smart after all." Or other times when she thinks like things are not going well and it turns out that they do and she has this great expression she i can't remember exactly when it happens in this film but she also does it in christmas in connecticut where she's trying to flip the flapjack and she does it with her eyes closed and the thing goes up and it comes back down and lands perfectly and she just turns and does this little delighted surprise face and i love the way she carries that off and, and so you know, she just her ability to do that and carry it off in a way that has us buying into it. I just I love her. I love her so much for stuff like that. Right. And then in another um, movie that I'm thinking of that she does something like that is the movie she appeared the year before this one. Remember the night um, when she. Um, is trying to explain to Fred McMurray his her philosophy on on uh, stealing. You know, she tells them the old story. You know, if you were out of work and you were starving, and you saw a loaf of bread um, that in the grocer's back was turned, would you steal it? And he said, of course I would. And she says, well, that's because you're honest. Me, I'd go to a restaurant, order a six-course meal, and then claim I forgot my wallet. See the difference? And he says, no. And she gets a very um, interesting expression on her face because she realizes that he doesn't get the difference. Yeah. And that's where she starts to fall in love with him. Yeah. And uh, now let's talk about Gary Cooper. You know, we talked, of course, about High Noon. 
And that was the type of character that Cooper was associated with for most of his career. Not just playing in westerns, but playing the strong, principled, silent type. But it may come as a surprise to people to remember that he actually did a lot of comedies early in his career or roles where he wasn't just playing the strong silent type. He actually appeared in a Lubitsch movie called Design for Living with Frederick March and Muriel Hopkins. And while Hopkins was the best thing about the movie. Cooper did a decent job in that role, and he does a good job here playing someone who is a strict grammarian, but at the same time, someone who, even though he's sort of naive, I guess is the word to say, when it comes to relations with women, You know, one of the professors has to actually poke him in the back uh, in order to get him to make an appeal to Miss Totten, uh, her romantic side, that is, not the fact that he wants her to um, continue to fund the encyclopedia. But he, even though he was actually somewhat of a playboy in real life, You know, he is good at playing this knowledgeable professor. And we're going to talk about the other professors here in the moment. But do you agree, Claude? Yeah, absolutely. And and one of the things I I like about him is that, that, as as you say, he he can be this smart guy. And at the same time... You know, with specifically with Barbara Stanwyck, as he kind of is with with her in in Meet John Doe, and then I'll even go back to another Capper film, uh, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, is right. In all of these, you've got a fairly decent, smart in their own way kind of guy who is suddenly out of their depth, you know, and he does that sort of thing really well, where he knows what he knows, and at the same time he's having a hard time handling it first until he gets his feet underneath him and starts to move the whole thing forward. And it, it's, it's one of those things he's actually demonstrated it many, many times before this. Well, not many, many, but several anyway, you know, and, and so it, he was, he turned out to be a pretty good choice for this particular role. Right. So let's talk about the other professors here. Let's do. Um, they are played by, let's uh, get that out of the way first. Uh, Professor Gurkakov by Oscar Homolka, uh, who I best remember as playing the member of an anarchist group in Alfred Hitchcock's movie Sabotage, one of his most underrated movies, I should add. Uh, Professor Jerome is played by Henry Travers, who we've discussed before when we talked about It's a Wonderful Life. Professor Megan Brook is played by S.Z. Sakal, who would reteam with Stanwyck in Christmas in Connecticut, although he's probably best known for playing Carl in Casablanca. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tully Marshall plays Professor Robinson, and a year later he would make a 180-degree term playing an evil industrialist 
in the movie This Gun for Hire, which also marked the leading man debut of Alan Ladd and the first of several movies that Ladd did together with Veronica Lake. Um, Professor Quintana is played by Leonid Kinski. He would also show up in uh, Casablanca as uh, Boris, the bartender. And then we had Richard Hyden as Professor Oddly. This was his uh, film debut, was it not? I believe so. He's best known, of course, for being in The Sound of Music, as well as the guy who sets Gene Wilder on his destiny, destiny in Young Frankenstein. I see what and you did there. <laughs> also, um, we should mention that Haydn and Kinski were made up to look a lot older than they actually were at the time to yeah. match the ages of the others. And then finally, Professor Pegram was played by Aubrey Mather, and he would actually appear in a Lubitsch movie called Heaven Can Wait, which is not to be confused, of course, with the Warren Beatty Heaven Can Wait. But one thing that makes all of these professors fit in with other Hawks movies is they are all good at their jobs and they're knowledgeable at what they know in their fields. As you can see, when um, the garbage man, played by Alan Jenkins, and by the way, he even though he only appears in a couple scenes in the movie, he's a very important character because it's his use of slang that gets Bertram to realize that his entries on slang are way outdated. And then when he comes in, while the professors are being held hostage by Pastrami and Asthma, who, by the way, is played by Ralph Peters, um, he mentions for a quiz show, or as he calls it, a quizzola, that... Um, he needs to get an answer about the Sword of Damocles. And that inspires all the professors to engage in this double talk, or some of them to engage in the double talk or distraction. You know, Professor Oddly holds up a coin, daring Pastrami to shoot at it, while um, Professor um, it's like, Gurkha I think it's Gurkha Kof, yeah. Yeah, um, has a micro, has a magnifying glass reflect light onto a rope that's holding up a painting. That once the rope burns, the painting will fall on Pastrami, so that the others will be able to subdue him. And Professor Quintana and a couple of the others are, when that happens, waiting to pull the rug out from under asthma so that they can get the drop on him as well. And Professor Oddly, um, being the one widower of the group, 
is the one who dispenses romantic advice to Professor uh, Bertram, even though it's somewhat outdated. And so even though these are all somewhat figures of fun, they're all good at their good in what they know. And the other great thing about them is that, you know, they may be book smart or, you know, into books, but that doesn't mean they're not curious about the world. When um, the garbage man first comes in asking questions, they don't treat him like a commoner, you know, or how dare you come in and interrupt. You know, they're genuinely aroused in, you know, discussing things with them, giving their knowledge to this guy, even if they don't understand exactly what he's talking about. They recognize him as a human being. And then, of course, they're all entranced by Sugar Puss, and they enjoy it when she's teaching them how to dance, for example. And, of course, when they're driving to New Jersey to try and stop the wedding between Joe Gagak and Sugar Puss, it's Professor uh, Jerome, I believe, who is the one who is giving the tickle torture yes. to um, Pastrami to get him to talk. So it's a very well-rounded per- portrayal of these professors even though of course this is a comedy so there's a certain element of character caricature in all of them yeah and and you know i i had said before we started recording that these guys are kind of monolithic and that's why i didn't pay a lot of close attention to them in my synopsis you know but but the fact is like you said they're all like very fine character actors they all as 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 um professors they're all good at what they do they're all knowledgeable they're willing to impart their knowledge to other people and and you know they're, they're not stupid by any means uh, uh um socially okay um but my my thing is that that i would have liked to see everybody get a little bit more spotlight the way oddly did during that scene where he's they're sitting down at dinner and he is talking about as you mentioned he's giving romantic advice even though it's a little bit outdated you know he still brings a little bit of like you know the the story that he tells about meeting up with his with his wife and getting married and going the honey and doing the whole thing and he tells this like wonderful story and you just kind of wish i mean at this point you're almost like three quarters into the movie by then and you just wish everybody could have gotten a moment like that. And it's, it's just kind of unfortunate that, that he was the only one who did. I mean, everybody else gets a moment as such, but nobody gets like a big thing like he did. Yeah, but I mean, it works. It does. And another thing that I think gets overlooked about this movie is it's visually interesting as well of course the cinematographer on this was one of the greatest cinematographers if not the greatest of the studio era greg toland of course you would know his name from citizen kane but the professors are all shot in deep focus Mm -hmm. to um, emphasize their togetherness 
and that scene where the um, where Bertram goes into what he thinks is Audley's room, but turns out to be Sugarpuss's room, although. Uh, Hawks had Stanwick's um, facial area around her eyes painted black so that she wouldn't be seen in the light except for her eyes. You know, that's a pretty darkly lit scene for comedy. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the way that the scene where the professors get the drop on asthma and pastrami is also well shot and crisply edited of course and the editor on the movie was daniel mandel so this is not a um just because this is a comedy does not mean that it looks pedestrian we yeah. should say yeah and and frankly for me the only shot that didn't really work looks wise would be Oddly enough, and coincidentally, since you use that word pedestrian, the opening where they are all pedestrians walking through Central Park because, uh, yeah, totally a set. But other than that, everything okay. else looked good. I mean, they did other exteriors or if they did an exterior or an exterior scene and did it on a set, it didn't look like a set. But that one, you know, kind of broke down a little bit for me. But everything else, yeah, looked fantastic. Okay. You do remember that there is a vast difference <laughs> between the sound era up to, say, 1945 and then after 1945 when it came to things like that. I do, but that doesn't mean I can't, you know, complain about it once in a while. Okay. Now, um, one other face that pops up here that you may uh, recognize here is the waiter at the club that uh, Bertram goes to when he first hears Sugar Puss. And the one who uh, they both sort of uh, confuse each other and how they talk to each other. Mm -hmm. And that is Elisha Cook Jr. Yes. Who uh, you may remember from a bunch of film noirs, including the Maltese Falcon, The Big Sleep, also directed by Hawks, and Stanley Kubrick's breakout movie, The Killing, among many, many, many others. So this is a rare comic role for him, but he makes it work. And Dana Andrews, I gotta say, is also very good. You know, I mean, obviously he's threatening when he needs to be. But he also handles his comic dialogue very well. This is not the sort of character that he was most known for. That was for things like uh, the Preminger movies he did, Laura, which I like a lot, mm -hmm. and While the City Sleeps. And uh, I think he's also in Where the Sidewalk Ends, which I did not say. While the City Sleeps, I'm not so much a fan of. But he's an effective comic villain here. Yeah, he, d he does do a good job. And, and I think the fact that he was used kind of sparingly for a big chunk of this, like most of the scenes that, are in, uh, that he's in are actually kind of short. But that works to our advantage. It's almost like the like the shark in Jaws. You don't have to see much of him to understand that that presence is there, you know, the entire time. 
Right. And uh, one other face uh, that I have to point out, since I'm a great fan of character actors, is the guy who plays Miss Totten's attorney. Yeah. And uh, by the way, um, that... W- of course, Miss Totten played by Mary Field, and I'm trying to think if there's anything else of hers that I saw that stuck out for me. But the guy who plays Miss Totten's attorney is Charles Lane, who is another one of those folks who has been in a bunch of movies, including one that we already talked about. It's a Wonderful Life. He mm-hmm. was one of. Frank for his favorites. He's one of the. Um, he's. Um, I think he's an architect or real estate developer or whatever. He's the landlord. For, he's, okay, he's the landlord for Mr. Potter, who uh, walks out of his office and has the memorable line. But one of these days, this bright young man will be asking George Bailey for a job. Which is kind of funny because Charles Lane has always looked like. He's never. I've never seen him where he looked young. He he like it's like he was yeah. born at forty five years old and went oh, forward from there. You know. <laughs> I just realized uh, we actually talked about a movie with Mary Field in it. She's in Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street. She is the mother of the Dutch girl. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. No, I did. <laughs> I did not realize. Remember that until I was. Uh, Perusing her page? uh, Yes, perusing her uh, IMDb page. So the one last thing I want to bring up before we wrap this up is that Howard Hawks, um, apparently not not something that he initiated, but he ended up remaking this movie as uh, a song is born. This time the folks were all... Uh, music professors and Danny Kay plays the part of um, Bertram. I forget if that's uh, his name in the remake. And Virginia Mayo, who appeared with Kay in quite a few movies, plays the Sugar Puss character. And Mary Field returns as Miss Totten. But I have to say this uh, actually no his um, Bertram is now Professor Hobart Frisbee in this version and Sugar Puss is called Honey Swanson but despite the fact that you have some great musicians in the cast uh, Benny Goodman Tommy Dorsey, Louis Armstrong Lionel Hampton among others the less said about this version, the better. Have you ever seen it, Claude? I have not, but I just, I kind of suspected. <laughs> yeah, so stick with the original in this case. So, Claude, do you have anything that you want to, else that you want to bring up before we wrap this up? Mm, no, I think I am good for now. All right, so coming up in part two, uh, we jump ahead 45 years to Mona Lisa. That's coming up immediately in your podcast feed, so stick around. <laughs> 